You asked me about defending the metrics to the board, but what we haven't touched on is defending the metrics to your team. And I think this is where that developer satisfaction piece um, comes in. Because the board, like, they're hungry for metrics. You don't need to convince them that tracking numbers on a piece of paper is a good thing to do. They're like, give me it all. Your team, though, guarantee they're skeptical. They're like, hey, what are you up to? What are you going to do with this? How is this going to impact my job? How is this going to impact the work that I'm doing? So I very strongly recommend that the team is involved from step step zero of implementing metrics if, you, if you're doing it for the first time. Developers want to be consulted about the performance and productivity of their teams, not just informed about it. When times are tough, engineering leaders need as much help as they can get. Linear B helps dev teams continuously improve by providing correlated data, context, and automated workflows that help streamline code delivery and improve developer experience. Learn more at linearb.io and check out our free tool, Gitstream. Gitstream is helping developers everywhere merge their code faster by revolutionizing the pull request review process. Every pull request is different. It's time we start treating them that way. Download Gitstream for free and learn more at gitstream.cm. Now, on to today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome <laughs> back to Dev Interrupted. I am your co-host, Connor Bronsden. And today we're learned by Laura Taco, a VP of engineering and an amazing engineering leadership coach who also teaches a great course on engineering metrics, which we'll get into later. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Great to be here. Yeah, Laura, it's, it's wonderful having you on here because you've got a diverse array of experiences. You've led teams at CloudBees, Outlet Education, Nova Credit, and you've coached leaders from over 125 different companies. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I have had uh, quite a breadth of experience now, especially st- since starting coaching full-time about a year and a half ago. I've coached leaders through my course, and then I have some leaders that I work with on very extended uh, engagements that last several months or sometimes several years. So it's been quite a different perspective being able to see into dozens of organizations at a time and see all the different things and all the same things that these teams are struggling with. And along the way, you've become a deep expert in developer tools and distributed systems. You've discovered, uh, you mentioned that you enjoy debugging systems of infrastructure as well as systems of people. And today we're going to dive into both those things. So systems of people and developer tools and how they play together and create magic when it comes to engineering teams. Uh, but first, let's get to know you a little better. So you're a coach today. You've been doing it for a couple of years now. You've had incredible success. But how did you actually get your start in engineering? I got my start in engineering when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I think like... Many of you, most of you listening to this, you probably have your nerd origin story. <laughs> I have mine, yeah, I which was do. when yeah. I was, you know, I I had uh, an old computer. My my uncle was a sysadmin. And then my very first computer was like running Windows 3.1 and DOS. And my uncle, for whatever reason, thought, like, let's teach this child how to use DOS and like how to use WordPerfect. And I thought that was so Oh, so he was cool. the cool one. And then... I mean, he's a, he's still a cool uncle. Let's okay, be let's okay. be honest, still a cool uncle. And that eventually turned into like, hey, let's give this child doom and see what happens. And this is what happens when you give an eleven year old child. Uh, I might have even been younger now that I think about it. This is I what happens that. when you give them doom. So I was around like around computers from a very young age, but it wasn't necessarily 
aside from my uncle, something that was encouraged uh, at school because I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, of all places. So, you know, I didn't I just didn't have a lot of the the support system and encouragement that I had. But I kind of stuck with my nerdy streak. I am a kid that went to science camp, uh, all, the, all the good stuff. And then I ended up not going into computer science at university because it just wasn't presented as an option for me, um, but stayed involved in UX, UI design. And I actually learned programming as something that people would pay me money for via animation. So all of my nerdy hacking wasn't really giving me the skills to get paid. Uh, but over time, I had sort of figured out how to to transfer that into something that people would pay me for. And I first got into front-end development before going into back-end development, because quite honestly, I find back-end development easier than front-end development, which I know is a bit of a spicy opinion, but web browsers are like the death of me. <laughs> so, And from there, as you said, I went deep into infrastructure developer tooling. And then fast forward a bit, I move into leadership. And then here I am now. I'm curious if animation is still like a pet project for you or if you've kind of ditched that part of your life. You know, there was a, a big period of my life. Well, relatively speaking, it felt big at the time. It was probably just a few years where I was like very convinced that I was going to be a film editor. And I even like edited quite a few, uh, quite a few movies. But I think it's like, like those, it's that nerdy, like debugging streak i don't i don't think it's too dissimilar from software engineering you're just sort of like you're tweaking frames and you're tweaking audio and doing all these like magic alg algorithmic things to make background noise or color correction or whatever it is i think it kind of activates the same the same part of people's brains so i have a lot of respect for it i just don't um actually i don't have time to watch movies anymore <laughs> and <laughs> you know how you know how it goes and uh but I, I do. Yeah, I think it's still cool. But if I have time to do a, a project, I'm probably going to pick something without electricity, quite honestly. Fair just enough. need a break. If, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it can be hard when you're doing that full time work in entering leadership and in, in diving deep and coaching other leaders to say, OK, like, I want to keep doing that in my spare time. Maybe to your point, you want to garden or do something different where you're a yeah. little different, differentiated from uh, your focused work. And I know you've had this experience of working with companies all over the world. You shared with me before we started talking that you've identified a number of key themes through that work that you think every company goes through. And you explain these themes through a fascinating analogy, which I think would be a great place for us to start our conversation. An analogy about the human body. The companies mm -hmm. are infants, which become toddlers and then teenagers. Do you mind breaking this analogy down for the audience and explaining why it's so instructive when thinking about the maturity stages that a company goes through? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'm so glad that this resonated with you because I've I've now spoke about it with some other leaders and it's interesting to see their reaction. So I'm excited to share it with this audience today. But, you know, I think as people or as tech people, we look around us and say like, oh my God, everything's on fire. Is this normal? And there's not often a voice telling you, hey, this is like, this is fine. And not in the like dog holding a cup of coffee in the fire fine, but like actually this is normal and it's okay. And the way that I kind of get there for myself and for my clients is to help people understand that businesses mature in the same way that people do. So you start out and you have just, there's, you're, you're running wild. You're just like, 
you know, a toddler who's like a tiny drunk human being. You're trying <laughs> out, you're experimenting everything. You're like acquiring your basic ver- like skills. You're learning how to use a fork. It's like you're not potty trained yet. <laughs> there's all this, there's like chaos. I mean, that is really what you what you what you are. You're a tornado of chaos in those first few years of your life. And also in in sort of the first few years as a company. And that's normal because in that chaos, you're testing things and experimenting things and something sticks. And when you find things that stick, then you can start to mature. But it's not that you're going from being a toddler in the middle of this tornado of chaos to being this like very well-versed, like 40-year-old experienced executive. You've got to go through all the awkward growing pains as well. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely stages. So you know, companies will go from being that toddler to kind of getting into, uh, you know, a little bit more mature, but then eventually you're going through puberty as a company. And most of the the leaders that I coach are in a startup world or they're in kind of a section of a larger enterprise that's still functioning somewhat as a startup is still going through that that chaos phase and trying to mature. You know, think back to yourself when you were 15. Would you want that person making any to? decisions for you? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, there's like your knees are you're like your your bones are growing too fast for your muscles and your knees and you've got like your arms don't fit in your, your jacket anymore and you've got acne everywhere and there's like hair in places that you didn't know there was supposed to be hair. It's just like it's all around an awkward phase. But when, you know, I think a lot of people look back, as you said, on their teenage years with like cr- a lot of cringe. I certainly do, but there's some things that still that are still just like so deeply ingrained in me. Like if I'm having an unproductive day and I need to just like get into some kind of working groove, for me, the best way to do it is to listen to the music I listened to as a teenager, which was just like a lot of Nirvana. So okay, I was that will just like you. yeah, it just like it takes you back and like you feel you know it's like that's when you were becoming yourself. And when companies go through this like puberty stage, which is kind of like series A, series B, series C, it's like you're getting it's like finding product market fit. Yeah, you're finding product market fit. Yeah, you're you're becoming big enough where the chaos way just doesn't work anymore. It just like fails, and you need to start. You know, you need to start having organization in place or just processes in place. I this I have this conversation often where someone will notice that it seems like they woke up one day and all of a sudden they didn't know what every single person was doing in the company. And if you've gone through this puberty stage, you've probably felt it that way before. It was like when you were like a, in the childhood phase, everyone could just sit in a room or like on the same all hands call and give an update and you knew what every individual was doing. And then when you go through puberty, all of a sudden you have these layers of abstraction that are dropped in. And you can't know what every individual is doing anymore. It just like, it's not sustainable. It doesn't scale. But these are the decisions and the times that like really, really cement a company's identity in the same way that listening to a lot of angsty nirvana, like kind of cemented who I became eventually as, as an adult. Um, yeah. And then from there, you just go, you, you continue to mature and eventually you end up, you know, like, I don't know, like my dad, who's 70 years old and <laughs> I can... When I think about like big enterprises, I think, wow, you're, you're like my dad. You've got like, you're a fully you've just formed, got all of, <laughs> you're a fully formed human being, but you've got, you've just like, you've got a lot of practice doing what you're doing. And like some of the stuff that you do, 
you probably wouldn't choose to do it again, but you like you don't know any better. So that's where you've ended up. What are maybe examples of things that get embedded into a company's DNA and stick with them throughout these stages? Because, you know, maybe it's listening to Nirvana. What's what's the equivalent for a company? Yeah, I think the communication patterns are a really, a really big thing here or just like the expectation around communications and individual ownership. Maybe I'll, I'll put it that way just to be to be really precise about what I mean. And and what I'm saying is like companies that go through this puberty stage and they start introducing layers of management, one of the failure modes is that they dump all of the responsibility of any kind of management, project management, like even things like specifically writing tickets. It's like, oh, well, now we have a manager. That's the manager's job. I understand where that urge comes from, which is like the thought. And it's like a, a false thought of let's free up time in development by putting all of these non-development tasks on somebody else to do. But what actually then happens is that you end up with an engineering team who just doesn't quite understand what it is they're working on and why it's important. And they really have trouble connecting things. And I've seen this failure mode happen. You know, I've seen it happen when it happens and I've seen what it turns into kind of five years later. But those are some of those patterns. It's like that deeply ingrained culture of like, who's responsible for something? Do you want your engineering team to be responsible for for writing code or for building software that solves user problems? And there's a big difference between the two two of those things. And those are the kinds of decisions that get cemented in these like puberty stages that are just really difficult to change. Not impossible, but difficult to change later. What's the advice you'd have for an engineering leader who's trying to intentionally bake in and have it versus maybe make sure another one doesn't get in the mix? It is hard work and it's exhausting. So I think maybe that's where I would start is like, this is going to feel bad for you to do that. As you said, to be very intentional with the culture that you're building, you have to really do a lot of examining and a lot of questioning of stuff that people might not perceive as broken. They might think, well, it works now. So why, why does it matter? Or we have more important things. What you see and what other people might not see is the implication of these things three years down the line or the implication of these things when your team is three times the size. So don't let that ickiness discourage you, but also recognize that it is, it, it is hard work. I think the other thing that, especially in a startup context, is that don't be afraid to really challenge these things with the founders or with the rest of the executive team. One thing that I've noticed a lot of engineering leaders are often, I would say a lot of a lot of engineering leaders who are responsible for execution. So I'm talking about kind of the VP persona and not the CTO technical co-founder, but they're often brought in later, kind of as a part of moving from toddlerhood into puberty. You know, they're hired because they have experience leading teams, and that's something that the organization lacks. But one thing that can happen is that because there's already an established group of leadership, often the co-founders, other executives, there can be a bit of a power struggle. But the reality is that no one else in that company knows more about leading an engineering organization than that VP that was brought in. And that is just, I think, something that those, those people doing that hard work of trying to be reflective and trying to be intentional need to remember that I'm here for a reason. And... I should challenge these things and I should trust my my intuition because your intuition is just 
you know, thousands of data points that you've gathered across your career as a leader that help you form opinions. And it's not just a gut feeling. It's it's much more than that. So don't be afraid to challenge even when it feels quite uncomfortable. So to use your analogy, this sounds like a common growing pain for a lot of companies that are kind of going to that puberty stage where they're saying, okay, like, I need to bring an experienced executive to help me lead this team and kind of level us up. But now there's this conflict with the, I'll call it like traditional values or the learned behaviors built by the C-suite that's been there since the start because that transition from, you know, a 20 person team that's like really together, as you pointed out, and, and has like low barriers to communication to a hundred person, a 200 person team, there's this scaling factor that comes in. Absolutely. I think you've, you've summed it up so nicely. And I think describing it as a growing pain is exactly the right vocabulary to use when talking about these things. Also, growing pains are much better to have than shrinking pains. So however painful it is. It's a good problem. It's, it's a good problem to have. It's much better than not having that problem at all or having this like artificial harmony where everything's like on this, like a duck, like everything's fine on the surface. And then underneath, it's just like this like and no dumpster fire that's about to erupt yeah. and just like spew garbage all over the place. So, you know, I think there's comfort in growing pains. I think there's comfort in power struggles or comfort, you know, comfort in those conflicts because conflicts happen when something is at stake. I would rather work at a company that has people discussing actual real things of substance than just this like artificial harmony where, it, you know, who knows if you're getting the outcomes that you that you really want. What are other common growing pains you see for these companies that are entering that scaling stage, that kind of leveling out of toddlerhood? Yeah, I think the that low expectations is something I see all over the place. And I wouldn't even pinpoint this as to something that's specific to that that maturity or like that maturity phase from toddlerhood into into puberty. I see it a lot there, probably more often, but it I I see it also in companies that are much more mature. And the reason I bring it up and even call it just low expectations is that when you are a scrappy lean startup, you are like fighting for scraps in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like you're looking for talent, you're trying to get people who are bought into your vision enough to sign on the dotted line and say, "Yes, I'll work for you for this much cash and this much equity." You're really trying to get people to to buy into your vision. And because because you find yourself in such like a precarious position where truly the difference between your bank account being what it is now and your bank account being zero could be a matter of, you know, it could be a matter of of days or weeks. It could be a matter of just like someone's bad decision or like someone leaves a NAT gateway open on AWS that you don't, rec- you don't realize until it's too late. And then, you know, you end up with a, a bill with a few more zeros on it. But because there's this kind of scarcity mindset around things, I think we tend to kind of let things slide or we, we've developed more personal connections with people. And when you have that level of, you know, friendship, quite honestly, it's, it, it's easier to let that cloud your judgment when it comes to what the business needs versus what you want to do as a human who's friends with these people. So I think that's where the low expectations can start to creep in. I think also leaders just have a hard time setting expectations for people. I think that's a universal truth. So we kind of, oh, totally. Uh, we've kind of looked at this all from the perspective of dealing with other people. But another important mm-hmm. element of this is actually tracking effective gains, understanding where you're trying to improve, 
and kind of using metrics to understand and make change effectively. Say you're Mm -hmm. at a scale up, how do you begin to think about using metrics at your company, especially in your engineering team uh, as you're growing? Yeah, I think that these people problems express themselves in ways that you can measure with data that can become available to you. I'm a very, I, I will, I will talk about this book, How to Measure Anything. And there's a, a great excerpt in that book or a great like point, which is like my main point that I took away from the book, which is that if there's any, if there's anything that's worth measuring, you can find a way. It's like take a clone of your organization and one clone, one clone is the control. And then the other one is the experiment. And let's say we are talking about higher expectations. In my experimental clone with higher expectations, what should I actually expect to see? Maybe I see more consistent velocity. Maybe I see fewer production outages. Maybe I see a lower change failure rate because people feel more accountable for the, you know, for the results or the outcomes that they're putting out there. So those are all things that I can start to measure. And when I think about at a scaling startup, what are the things, what are the first things that I look to measure? The first place I always start is some kind of developer satisfaction and just asking my team, hey, what are, what are the things that slow you down? And usually we are going to come up with sort of like the, the most low hanging fruit when it comes to getting development environments set up, like all the tooling that no one had time to invest in because you were just like chasing product market fit and it was just so difficult. But chances are your team is going to be able to point you to the direction. And then I think there's other standard metrics, collections of metrics like Dora metrics, for example, that are generally good to use as some indication of maturity model, you know, when you start scaling and when you actually have enough data to, you know, make make it make it useful to you that it's actually going to tell you something and it most importantly tell you where to focus on. Do you view these as metrics that should mostly be internal or should they be like pseudo external? And by that, I mean, like, should the board be hearing about some of these metrics? Like, oh, here's how we're doing on our developer experience satisfaction. Here's how we're doing on these door mm-hmm. metrics. What would you be reporting up as a you know VP of engineering to your board? Yeah, I've, I've definitely reported Dora metrics up to the board and given a summary of it. I think the caveat there is that your, your role then is to educate the board on what those metrics mean and why they're important. Whereas in an internal or sort of engineering org facing conversation, it's easier to talk about lots of other stuff because people have that shared context and they understand why they're important. There's things that I would never take to the board. Like I would never talk about percentage of flaky tests to the board. Um, I would probably not talk about such specific things like number of comments on a PR to the board or these like very minute metrics that might be measuring a very specific behavior that I'm trying to influence, but aren't, you know, sharing a, a bigger story that is sort of easy to understand for people who might not be coming from a software engineering background. What about, you know, the relationship with your CEO. Obviously, it's crucial as a you know VP of engineering to uh, have that be a positive one. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you seen examples of when a, a CEO maybe dives into the wrong metrics uh, and gets attached to data that you don't think is necessarily relevant? Yeah, I think the I think the job of CEO is is very hard. I'll I'll just preface this with, with saying that I think it's 
I think it's easy to harp on the like uneducated CEO who doesn't understand software engineering. And I think any good CEO has a solid enough foundation of that branch, but also as a VP of engineering, it's your job to make sure they understand it. So I, there's only so much you can do, of course. Um, but let's assume this is a partnership and, and we want to have a positive relationship. Sales, looking at the revenue side of the company, you've got a number. There's one number. It's revenue. And from that number, of course, you can look back or you can go backwards and say, okay, well, how many calls did we have? Qualified leads. There's all of these other indicators. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's money. It's clear reporting. Yeah. It's so obvious whether it's like we're just doing well or we're not doing well. There's just like one number. And the hard thing about software engineering is that for, especially for product companies, and I'm, you know, most of my experience is in SaaS product companies, there's really not one metric that only the engineering organization has influence on. There's so many different ways to set KPIs and metrics. We can talk about North Star metrics, and I think that's maybe one of the most popular, uh, popular ones that you know, many, many people who are listening to this might have some experience with, but you're not working in isolation to reach that North Star metric of, you know, whatever it is, engaged users or number of uploads or whatever. You've got a product team, you've got a whole go-to-market team, you've got this like entire system of cogs working together. Software engineering is just one part of that. But from a CEO's point of view, where is most of the salary money going in a company? It's going to software engineering. engineers. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, we can we can harp on a CEO who's like, how many lines of code were written? And I I mean, I will be the first per- person to tell you this is not a good metric. I think <laughs> we can all agree lines of code is not a good metric. But, you know, looking at where the pressure comes from, where they're rewarded, what the, what the other patterns they have in other parts of the business, I can understand why lines of code is a tempting metric to look at. So it's, you know, it's your job as a VP of engineering or engineering leader to try to educate people uh, on why lines of code is not great. But it's also, you know, it's really hard to pick one metric that matters because time and time again, research shows us there just isn't one single metric in the same way that we have revenue on this on the sales side. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the sales comparison because uh, this is something we think a lot about at Linear B. So our our CEO Ori Kieran, who's a former VP of engineering himself, wrote this this great blog that I, I think is very uh, relevant in this case. Why being VP of engineering was harder than being CEO. He's a CEO today of Linear B, and he talked about this exact comparison where. He's like, look, it's really hard to make that translation point for your CEO. And, and like, even now in the CEO role himself, he has to d- struggle with this challenge at the other end where like he's not in the engineering team every day. How does he understand what's coming out mm-hmm. of that team when, to your point, it's so much easier to look at what sales is doing? And this is where I think tooling and making sure that you have access to the right metrics so you can then be that translation layer is so important. Mm-hmm. Are there particular areas where you think tooling can help engineering leaders define metrics and set expectations with the C-suite and and board members? Yeah, I think that metrics like door metrics that have a wide, a large amount of industry benchmarking data can really help a a board or a C-suite 
put into context the performance of your own organization. Because without that context, it's just sort of like, here's a data point floating on a graph. And I don't know what it, like, it's just hard for me to know if it's like, good, is it bad? Is it going up or down? You know, I can tell you that over time. But I think context is so important to these leaders to help them really understand what these metrics mean. What's the comparison to other teams at similar stages? What's the threshold in order to know when something is like too far down or too far up? And then most importantly is like, what are you going to do about it? So let's say we have the metrics now. We're starting to report them to the board, to the C-suite. How do you justify the use of those metrics uh, as you kind of grow in maturity level as a company? Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the example I would, I would ask is, how would I think about framework decisions as a company that's a toddler versus now that I'm scaling to a teenager level? Yeah, I think that the metrics that you choose Some of them are persistent metrics. Some of them are these like kind of health metrics that are running in the background. For example, like attrition rate of your engineering team. Totally. You know, you might, Dora metrics, those are great ones to just like, you know, usually you reach a threshold where you reach sort of a baseline and you don't have to actively work on it, but you just want to keep them like running in the background to make sure that everything is okay. On top of those, there's always opportunity to bring in these like time bound metrics that are focused for the specific business problems. And I think this is one of the techniques that that engineering leaders often overlook is that they're just looking for a library of metrics to track all the time without understanding that you can actually adapt those metrics based on the business goals and based on the series and stage of your company. So for example, a scaling startup, one of the the areas that I emphasize with companies in in that stage is looking at time to first commit for new hires, looking at local development setup time, looking at how long it takes you to run tests locally, how long does it take you to build CI, you know, how what's the deployment frequency because you are you are growing and scaling and you can't do that unless you have new people coming in and learning what to do quickly and if their feedback loops are taking like a week at a time it just like your company is going to move at a snail's pace and that's just not healthy when it comes to scaling but in an old enterprise that's like steady state or a team that's like in maintenance mode they don't need to look at those things it's not important so that's why this like one size fits all kind of just like library of metrics that everyone should track just doesn't, to me, in my opinion, just doesn't work because there's so there's just different needs for different teams. And it's important to be in tune to like, what are the variables that should change? Yeah, to your point, I think there are some standard frameworks that we should apply, right? Like Dora is one example of one that's like, okay, like most, most companies will use these at some stage, if not repeatedly, but it can always depend based on the company of like, okay, maybe a couple of these metrics are really crucial to me, but also there's this other one that I'm pulling in uh, that I really want to focus in. Or, may- or maybe for you, like cycle time is everything because you just need like speed to feature release. It, it can depend Absolutely. on the company. And I think it's important to have the flexibility to kind of adjust based off of uh, your needs of that as an engineering org, the stage of your company, and also like who are, are your stakeholders? Who are your customers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so like on the other side of that is like for teams that aren't are kind of beyond their their adolescence and more mature teams, things that I would recommend are, you know, still tracking those frameworks, like still keep track of Dora metrics, even if you've been elite for the last five years, make sure you stay there and make sure that it's part of your culture that you 
care about things like, hey, we need to run that incident response drill again because we need to check what our MTTR is and we want to make sure that it stays below 45 minutes or whatever your target is. Those, I think the the more mature a product becomes, I think the more pressure that you get from the revenue side to work with your design partners and your flagship partners and these like bigger contracts that you start getting. I mean, I think that's kind of like what enterprise software is, is like you have, you know, when someone's like waving $3 million uh, on a little string in front of you and they need you to do X, Y, Z, you're probably, you know, like you have heavy financial incentives. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's like, okay. So, you know, those times I think that those questions about how satisfied are you with quality? How often do you think we have to make trade-offs? Those are the kinds of questions that I would ask the team to start like pointing in a direction to figure out, okay, what's what's useful here? Feedback cycles, again, are even at, at companies that are beyond product market fit and they just like need to be getting work done. Feedback cycles are, are key. So like cycle time, build time, you know, frequency of deployment, those are all things that I would still continue to to recommend, even as you've transcended beyond awkward teenage stage and are sliding into your <laughs> sliding into your adulthood and enjoying uh, the maturity that comes with it. And I'll do a slight plug here. Uh, we do have benchmarks to help you understand how your team's actually performing against Dora as one example. So if you are looking into that benchmarking stage, uh, linearb.io slash benchmarks, totally free. Uh, we researched about 2000 teams to kind of build on Dora research to help other engineering leaders like yourselves um, understand where am I at? Is what I'm doing actually good here? Is my MTTR good uh, for comparison? So interesting resource, recommend checking it out just to give yourself some yeah. context into how you're thinking about this. Because as you establish that metrics framework, engineering leaders often have to defend these metrics to C-suite or to board members mm-hmm. and say, oh, this is good or... Now, this is important for us, and here's why. How do you kind of do that explanation of what habits you need to change or, or, or what good is? Yeah, as you said, building on Dora research is really important. The interesting thing is, like, there's so much data about things like Dora metrics because it, they've been, it's been around for long enough. We have the State of DevOps report. We have, a, you know, multitudes of other studies that have been done. The thing is, like, do you want to be the one that's searching through and sifting through all the the charts and graphs and like compiling the trends? Probably not. So relying on, you know, companies that do this for you, that's great. You can pay for that data if you're paying for a tool. Often it comes with some kind of benchmarking data. That's great as well. But that's like, you know, I think that's step step zero when you have to tell a story about it is like putting things into context. How would you go about defending these metrics? And which oh, one yeah. you picked, your framework that you've selected to other leaders within your organization saying, hey, this is why these ones fit for us. Yeah. The way I go about setting up that conversation to defend metrics is generally always anchored in business goals and the yearly goals for the for the company. I think as, you know, the higher you get in management, the the more you need to speak business and the more comfortable that you need to be just generally talking about business goals versus your own departmental goals. And if you're, if, if you're trying to defend your metrics because there's a huge disconnect between what your department is trying to accomplish and what the business is trying to accomplish, that's not a them problem. That's a you problem that you need to right. fix because that means that your priorities just aren't lined up. So for example, 
you know, what I referenced before with this scaling company who's going to have expanding headcount and focusing their metrics on, first of all, engineering excellence. We're looking at things like Dora metrics and picking these frameworks, but then also supplementing that with metrics about onboarding, time to first commit, local development. These are all things that enable the business goals of scaling up a team. So the story there, the narrative is rock solid. But if I were to come in and talk about this like heavy emphasis on, I don't know, security and whatever else that's, and and not mention hiring at all, I wouldn't be surprised if I had a room of people scratching their heads at me and saying like, this isn't what we're looking for. Yeah. And I think this brings up something interesting. So there were the space metrics that were released, what, two years ago now? And there's Mm -hmm. also been this big push recently about talking about developer experience. And you referenced that one of your viewpoints is that one of the first metrics that an engineering leader should pay attention to is developer satisfaction, which I think leans heavily into that DX space framework. How do you mm-hmm. think about this, like developer satisfaction, developer experience metrics? What would be the approach that you'd recommend to engineering leaders to figure out what the right pieces of that to track are? for them? Yeah. So you asked me about defending the metrics to the board, but what we haven't touched on is defending the metrics to your team. And I think this is where that developer satisfaction piece um, comes in because the board, like they're hungry for metrics. You don't need to convince them that tracking numbers on a piece of paper is a good thing to do. They're like, give me it all. Your team though, guarantee they're skeptical. They're like, hey, what are you up to? What are you going to do with this? How is this going to impact my job? How is this going to impact the work that I'm doing? So I very strongly recommend that the team is involved from step step zero of implementing metrics if you if you're doing it for the first time the line that i will will repeat and like i'll rent a plane and you know fly it and sky riding is that developers want to be consulted about the performance and productivity of their teams not just informed about it and absolutely throwing up a dashboard that says, shame on you, you all took 72 hours on average to review PRs this last week. You're not good. That's a smell in your team. That is not going to get you the trust and increase in productivity that you're looking for. So when I think about implementing metrics or introducing metrics, I do always recommend starting with a conversation with the team or even a survey. I released a blog post probably about six weeks ago at this point about developer satisfaction surveys and kind of how I think about structuring them. And I released a question bank and it very obviously struck a, struck a chord with a lot of leaders who are really wanting to do this, but just like not equipped with the tools to, to know how and when and what should be on it and when to ask, how to ask all of these things. So I can tell that it's like, you know, it's something that leaders do care about and it's something that the teams really appreciate, but there's just not a lot of understanding of how to do it well. Once you start with that survey, chances are your team knows what is preventing them from being able to work more effectively. They're going to tell you, oh, I could get so much more work done, but I'm wasting three hours a day rerunning builds for these like this flaky end to end test suite. And until you do something about that flaky end-to-end test suite, it does not matter whatever else you do because doing anything that's not the bottleneck isn't going to improve performance. And the team, then if you say, okay, well, let's start tracking it. Let's start tracking, you know, failure rate of this particular test suite. And let's start, you know, let's start tracking how many times 
every build has to be rerun until we get a, a green build or whatever metric it is, they'll be like, yes, thank you. We finally get some visibility. Whereas if you don't start from that conversational place and just say, here's the metrics we're tracking, that conversation is just not going to get the result that, that you're looking for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on point. You need buy-in from a team as to why these mm-hmm. metrics matter or else that's not going to be a priority. And you can set goals from a top down. Uh, that's not going to create a healthy culture. It's better to involve engineers in that goal setting process and set the goals together and say, hey, I see that you know it takes us 24 hours to pick up a PR on average or as, as a media, mm-hmm. maybe a better example. And we want to improve that because if we do, we can uh, make for more synchronous paired opportunities to actually improve code. And, and there's less context switching if we move faster on this. Uh, plus, it'll actually enable us to ship features faster to make the rest of the business happy and get off our back. Uh, let's mm-hmm. set this goal together. But if the team doesn't buy into that, I mean, you can try to force them into, into doing that, but it's going to have morale impacts, which, you know, to your point, affects developer satisfaction, affects retention. Mm-hmm affects productivity probably, or, or maybe the team will, like you said, say, actually, the issue is these flaky tests because I waste so much time on this a week and I don't, I don't have time to pick up a PR when I'm doing with this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And, and I'll be the first person to admit that I, like so many engineering leaders, was like, if I just had this like quantitative objective data, I would just be able to know where the problems are. Like I you know, my team might feel that this is a problem, but if I had data, then I could just like see whether it was actually a problem. And, you know, that was a mistake on my part. And I quickly learned my own lesson. And I think that it just takes time to to learn that lesson for, for other leaders. And I think there's no shame in kind of starting at that point of like, well, I just want my team to ship more tickets and I want data to show me where the bottlenecks are. But the reality is that the, the data can't tell you anything different than what your team can tell you. And even if it does, it kind of doesn't matter because if you have a team of unhappy developers, that's going to impact the team performance far more than anything else. There's a, a, a strong link between satisfaction and productivity. So just by like listening and initiating the conversation, that's going to have a, a positive effect in and of itself. Absolutely. Uh, I love the perspective you're bringing to this. And I appreciate you wrapping it all in an analogy that actually, I think will help folks in the audience to connect with and understand very easily the stages you're going through here. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Before we go, I do want to mention you have a a great course on this that you teach. Uh, Let's give a little plug here. Can you tell the audience a bit about the course you teach on metrics and, and your approach? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation to talk about metrics, I think, in a way that they're not often talked about, especially by engineering leaders as being kind of team first and then to relate them to like your grow this growing like organization going through all the stages of development is so important. I teach a course called Measuring Development Team Performance. Um, you can find out more about it by going to my website, which is laurataco.com. Laura is Laura and taco is T-A-C-H-O.com. But just click on courses and you'll find it. But this is a cohort-based course, which means you are in a group with usually about 30 to 35 other engineering leaders who are all looking to implement metrics at, in their companies, companies big and small. So you get to learn from them. I do some lectures. We have a group project. You get access to templates from me, coaching from me. It's a really great experience for everyone that goes through it. Also a great experience for me to kind of see 
where the pain is and see what what people are struggling with. But if you're looking, if you're curious about metrics or you already have metrics and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm doing it right, we're going to go over the space framework. We go over Dora metrics. We look at different ways to measure developer satisfaction. I yeah, give you templates. There's just a lot of stuff in that course. And I've designed it for busy engineering leaders. It is only for engineering leaders and people that work in software. So there's no, it's not, you know, a general productivity measurement course. It's really focused on engineering leaders. Fantastic. Uh, definitely check that out if you're someone who's looking to learn more. And Laura, thanks again for coming on. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Connor. It was great to chat with you. And a final word for our listeners, if you've still listened through this entire episode, if you enjoyed it, check out our YouTube, youtube.com slash devinterrupted. Uh, it is a great place to learn more about what we're up to, to see other episodes, clips from some unique video content we also release there. And make sure to like and subscribe. We always love having your support and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.